Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. This notion that you need to continue to build this massive piece of infrastructure to the peaks is going to go out the window, right, as energy storage comes in and it can charge at night and discharge during the day and take the infrastructure we have and make it last another 20, 30 years. It's going to be much easier for regulated utilities to rate-based massive batteries than it is going to be to build new transmission lines through communities. Right, right. And it's going to be cheaper, right? I mean, a fraction of the cost. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Welcome to episode 59 of Suncast. I'm your host, Nico Johnson, and I am so glad that you're back with me again this week as we gear up for the second episode in this Solar Plus Storage series. If you missed the first one, it was episode 56 with Travis Simpkins of Mew Grid. You should take some time to go back and check it out. Hey, shout out to the World Bank and European insurance giant AXA and even Johns Hopkins University. All in the news this week, actively divesting of coal and tar sands investments or insurance products in the case of AXA. There is some sanity making its way into the world this week, folks. We have so much to be grateful for heading into the holiday season. And I want you all to know that I'm grateful for you. Thank you for listening to Suncast. Thank you for helping us get to 59 episodes. You know, this started as a passion project for me over two years ago. And while we may not be posting energy gang-like numbers, I'm incredibly proud of the over 30,000 downloads and counting. And I look forward to a new year of helping equip you, Solar Warrior. So today on Suncast, I get to interview one of the guys who's had a massive impact on my own personal career and life. Mike Grineau is the VP of Marketing at Vision Energy Systems, and he and I have known each other for just about a decade. He was my boss at Trina Solar, that's for sure, but he's also been a mentor and friend since way back when he was in GE. And today, we really dig in and hear Mike's perspective on the energy storage landscape. Mike is one of the smartest sales and marketing professionals I know in any industry, and he also has some very strong opinions. On the marketing side, we get into things like how to spec out a good MRD or market requirements document. What is a straw man and how do you test a straw man offer? And on the storage side, we actually cross a broad but detailed spectrum. We talk about the biggest misconception around lithium-ion batteries. Mike does a breakdown of flow versus lithium-ion storage, including the pluses and minuses of each, from limitations and duty and cooling cycles to electrodegradation. The difference between power and energy and why it's not always clear for many developers new to storage. In fact, Mike gives great examples of just about every topic we touch on. He even provides use cases for storage in Latin America. And finally, we learn what batteries and energy storage have in common with Happy Fun Ball. Don't remember Happy Fun Ball? Go over to the blog post for a blast from the past. 
a little bit of humor, and a bit longer thought on this topic. I consider Mike one of my go-to experts when I need to really get a level set on the value proposition of selling, either a specific product or into a particular market, vertical, etc. His years at GE, Trina Solar, and numerous startups have honed his ability to craft the story and understand all the variables for product introduction. And after all, just about any deal is in fact the art of product introduction, isn't it? But Mike is more than a marketing genius. He's completely consumed with and dedicated to the idea of moving our world towards a carbon-free grid. And I believe you are going to love hearing the passion in today's show. Hey, if you missed out on the three-part webinar series that we recently concluded with Solar Edge and Solar Lead Factory, and you'd like to get a link to view the replays, you should jump over to mysuncast.com and sign up for the mailing list because I'll be sending out those replays in the coming week. Also, if you go to mysuncast.com forward slash edge, we also have a link in the title bar for courses. You can sign up to get notified when we launch the forthcoming extension courses where Scott Muller and yours truly will be taking a deeper dive into the topics that we introduced in that webinar series. This episode, as always, is brought to you in partnership with soulrates.com the fast and free online platform for providing your commercial customers with a credible lease financing proposal. If you have projects over $100,000 in value and you'd like to see how Soul Rates can help you quickly and easily deliver a financing proposal to your customers, head over to mysuncast.com forward slash Soul Rates, S-O-L-R-A-T-E-S, and click on Request an Invitation. Thanks again for setting aside this time in your day. Without further ado... I give you this week's episode of Suncast with Mike Bruno. I am so excited today to invite one of my longtime friends, mentors, bosses into a discussion on Suncast. Mike Grunow, unbeknownst to he and I, ended up being a big influencer in my own career long before I ever had the chance to work for him. He's now well-known in the industry and is the VP of Marketing at Vizen. He's been in the industry for 14 years across wind, solar, storage. You know, Notably, he hired me at Trina Solar and has gone on to do very interesting things across the spectrum of, of solar plus storage. One of those guys who you look at on the outside and think, wow, this guy's really got his game together. Raising a family, living in the Midwest, and is a talented open water swimmer, for those of you who don't know it. <laughs> but I'm glad to actually get a chance to dig into a bit of Mike's backstory this week. And I welcome you, buddy, to Suncast at long last. Uh, well, Nico, uh, great to be here. And it's true, I do float very well. And, uh, you know, you will see, uh, based on meeting me in public, that there's uh, some pretty good reason for that. It's great to be here with you. I'm really happy to see, you know, this podcast series for you has taken off. And as you said, you know, I've been at this for over a decade. Happy to talk with you and your audience today. One of the crazy ways that life happens, I remember reaching out to a guy because I was considering joining the GE Renewable Energy Leadership Program. And for anybody who has any insight into these out-of-college prep-you-for-the-real-world programs, you know, the GE RELP is one of those gold standard programs where it will literally set you on a different track in life if you want to be in the corporate world and you want to really play with the big boys. And I'd reached out through LinkedIn to a guy who basically said, hey, I'm no longer at GE, but you should talk to this guy who just got out of the program. His name is Mike. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember the phone call. And, uh, you know, it, I made a huge change in my earlier career. You know, for four years, I was designing missile guidance systems for the Navy. 
And I was doing that when uh, 9-11 happened and it really galvanized my life and forced me to put my foot down and pivot towards a career in a field that I found more rewarding and was a better use of, of my efforts. You know, uh, I've uh, been hopefully very open and as open as I possibly can be given my bandwidth towards young people, especially over the last 10 years, and talented people, bankers, lawyers, attorneys, finance folks, salespeople, commercial people who are looking at doing something they're more passionate about. Nico, you were one of the people who I spoke to, I think, in my late 20s. You know, I, I couldn't be prouder of you and prouder of everything that, uh, you know, the industry's achieved. Yeah, I'd say that of, of all the people I know in the industry who've had influence, your fingerprint is on my life, and I appreciate that. And I'm and I'm so grateful to have a chance to have you on the show because I feel like you've got a nose for what is going on in the market, and you have a unique way. And this I learned I learned this when we were working together at Trina. You have a unique way of seeing through the chaff and getting straight to the grain, getting to the actual essence of a conversation or an argument in a way that few people do. And it's what makes you a great marketer. It's what makes you a great communicator about the story arc of a business as well as of an industry. And in my view, you've always had that nose for getting at, you know, like I said, the niche that's ahead of the adoption curve or the conversation that people that underlies the broader market. I'd love to hear what about your training at GE? Do you feel like prepared you to be able to do that, like sort of see ahead of the curve, what have you learned over the years about evaluating good opportunities? You know, I, I'd say the, the number one thing that I think any of us should have kind of built into them is this burning passion, right? And this creativity to affect change. But I think one of the things that I'd admit to is that, you know, I have my own unique flavor of ADD. The moment I stop learning, the moment I feel like, you know, whatever we're working on is old hat and easy to replicate, the moment we're turning the crank on something as opposed to reinventing the wheel, I get bored. And so I'm kind of always looking forward. Like you said, I was with GE when they grew and I played some pretty small roles there, right? I give GE a lot of credit, but they grew the wind business from 300 megawatts to 6 gigawatts. And at Trino, you know, you and I jointly grew it from, you know, less than 250 megs a year to over 1.3 gigs a year. And there are some good market trends. And, you know, there's a lot more than what we did that made that happen. But, you know, all businesses go through these S-curves and industries go through these S-curves of rapid adoption and change. And, you know, once things start to stop changing at an exponential rate and you're back into a normal compound annual growth rate, I start looking around for what's next. That's answer number one. I guess answer number two would be, you know, the everybody's always known that wind and solar, at least, you know, in our industry, wind and solar had the potential to be half the cost of coal. But they've got a lot of baggage, frankly. You don't know when they're going to blow or when it's going to shine. And so during my experience at GE, one of my last roles there was product line manager of what they were calling next generation renewable energy. I had the opportunity to lead a cross-functional team as a product line manager to kind of say, okay, what's next? What's the next billion dollar clean energy business? And I've sort of been asking that question ever since, you know, the... The time I spent at Trino was fascinating because we were right there in Silicon Valley. At least five times during that period, we were approached by energy storage companies in the Valley. Trina Corporate was. Trina Corporate would put groups of PhDs and technical folks on planes from Shanghai into San Jose, and I would meet them and go to the business that was searching for funding. And during that period of time, you know, I really had to author what I would call a market requirements document a document that illustrates for front-of-the-meter storage, for behind-the-meter storage, what are the product specs that are needed to generate the income streams to 
uh, enable the unlevered IRRs that will be required to attract capital into these segments. Frankly, I shot down five investments, not from the technical perspective, but from the business perspective, searching for how are these batteries going to make money? You know, I've been a big fan of this game for a decade. You know, I think just in the past few years, we're starting to see more sustainable markets for energy storage applications and specific use cases where the batteries can make enough money. And I believe it's just the tip of the iceberg and we're dealing with some pre-market niches here that are... uh, going to be the beginnings of some uh, very huge trends over the next decade. I'd like to stay on this topic a bit, if you don't mind, around the specific tools or or methodology or thought process that you go through when you're looking at an opportunity. You mentioned a market requirements document. Well, let's say maybe I'm working at a module company and I'm trying to figure out how to help my customers integrate storage better. Or maybe I'm at an EPC and I'm trying to address how to think about adding storage as a product category. What are some of the tools that I could use as a lens to really address this overarching question that can be daunting? So let me put myself in the shoes of a P&L manager at an EPC has been, you know, in the renewable energy game and general electrical construction game for 20 years and has deployed anywhere from 50 to 500 megawatts of PV in commercial, industrial, and mm-hmm. utility-scale applications over the past three to five years. They got into solar in a big way recently, and now they're thinking, hmm, what should I do about storage? Mm-hmm. Like everything, I think it always starts with the customer, right? You have to say, okay, which particular end-user segment do I believe that I have a sustainable advantage at serving? And what is the unique mix of products and services that I can bring to market for that particular customer segment that's going to separate them from their capital in a way that scales Mm. so that I can build a product, service, and solution, whether it's hardware, engineering, turnkey with financing or not, that meets or exceeds the customer expectations, right, in a particular segment. You know, just in saying that, I'm like, geez, I sound so much like a GE guy, right? (laughs) That sounds like the experienced commercial leadership program. For me to say it was just my ADD earlier, I guess isn't true, right? Because that idea of understanding the customer and developing a complete solution to meet their needs is critical. And then you step back and you say, okay, well, you know, I'm an EPC. The complete solution is product plus engineering plus financing plus service. Which of those am I going to make? Which of those am I going to partner for? Then I have to go out and find best in class partners for cohesive aggregation throughout, you know, a a leveraged ecosystem. So can you expound a bit as though you were coaching or giving advice to the person in that executive role on, again, what filter, what lens, what tools might they use to consider how to add storage in a valuable way for their customer base? So let's just say that the PC in question is based in New Jersey, or the developer in question is based in New Jersey. They're believing that you know commercial industrial systems for demand charge management or time of use bill optimization are systems that they could easily applicate. They're feeling like they have a straw man for their complete solution, product, service, and financing. I don't mean to sound cliche when I bring up the word customer, but the, the number one, number two, and number three thing you should do in starting and expanding your product line is to build what I call, you know, a straw man presentation or initial draft of your overall value proposition. And then get in your car, drive to three customers to whom you've sold solar who could be potential customers for this offering and pitch it and pitch it as a voice of customer offering. You know, do it in a fearless way. 
I always liken it to being in a, a shootout at the OK Corral, right? So you're the bartender sitting behind the bar and you're jotting down your ideas for you know how to grow your business. At some point in time, you need to take that poster you just wrote them on and hold it up above the bar and then keep it there for a little while and pull it down and see if there are bullet holes in it, right? <laughs> and then do that three or four times so that you can figure out in a friendly environment what's going to hunt and what's not going to hunt. You know, the last thing you want to do is sink a lot of your bandwidth and a lot of your time and money and your company's effort into a strategy and execution only to run out onto the field and get your helmet knocked off because you don't have your chin strap buckled and your mouthpiece in. The whole idea of getting early, getting out there early, building a three to five slide PowerPoint pitch, getting it shot up in a fearless way, I think is the most important thing to do early on in your business. Well, you know what I love about that answer is that you have direct on the ground experience of doing this. You guys represent a different chemistry in the marketplace, which means you have to often address misconceptions and you are helping your prospective customers or your existing customers address these barriers to entry in the market or address these objections. I'd love to hear what are the most common misconceptions that you and your team have to correct or educate with regard to storage in your category? So Vision is a 10-year-old company. We, we manufacture a flow battery. We're building currently the largest flow batteries in Central America, in North America, in India, and we're contracted for the largest flow battery in Europe. We started commercial shipments about two years ago. You know, we're competing head-to-head -head against lithium-ion in roughly 90% of the transactions that we're out there working on. To get back to your question, you know, what is the largest misconception? I believe that it has to do with this perception that lithium-ion is the preferred long-term solution for stationary storage and that it's just going to dominate, right? Because it does have market share leadership over the past two to three years of a burgeoning industry where we have seen single-service application markets pop up, whether it's PJM or SoCal Edison. We've seen large stationary batteries start to take hold for specific applications. I want to back up one step, like one level up and say, what does flow battery even mean? If I'm actually like trying to figure out storage, what's the difference between flow battery versus Tesla's Powerwall lithium ion or, or whatever it is that, you know, Enphase is offering or whatever it is that Saft is offering. And I'm, I'm okay at this point, right? Like tell me the differentiating factors of vision. I also don't mind if you go ahead and brag about like the fact that you guys are NREL funded and you're like one of the longest standing companies in the industry, but like set the stage where you guys differentiate, but take for granted that, that we understand the specific terminology that you use. So I'll call you out on it if you don't mind and ask you to, to drill down on certain terminology as it comes out. So I hope, hope you don't mind if I interrupt, but if you could just explain flow battery and then like jump back into the pitch, because I would love to break it down and, and understand where the storage market is differentiated. Let me talk about battery along three different key technology features. A, duty cycle limitation, B, electrode degradation, and C, cooling required to prevent thermal runaway. And let's look at flow batteries versus lithium ion, right? With a flow battery, right, you have your two separate electrolytes and you can charge and discharge them up to two to three cycles a day. There are no limitations in terms of how you use a flow battery. With a lithium-ion battery, you can only use at max one cycle a day. And now you're even hearing that you're not supposed to keep your phone on your charger overnight because the battery doesn't want to be exposed to that type of 
long duration current, especially at top and bottom of what's called the state of charge. Mm. And the state of charge on your phone is actually that little green battery. So when it's fully green, it's uh, 100%. And when it's red, it's on the bottom. So duty cycle limitation is one of them. And we always tell our customers, drive it like a rental, right? <laughs> Essentially, every time you're using a battery, a typical battery that's not a flow battery, you are essentially eating away at your warranted cycles, right? So lithium ion manufacturers, they're like big brother. They watch how you drive it. You know, they're like that insurance company that's got the chip in your car that can sense the G's and your insurance rate's going to go up or down based on not whether you drive like a granny or you drive like a maniac. Mm -hmm. The fact is that, you know, duty cycle limitation is a, uh, a huge impediment to using batteries to their full potential. Electrodegradation, right? So when you look at a flow battery manufacturer's warranty versus a lithium ion battery manufacturer's warranty, our battery basically says, we're going to maintain 85 to 90% amp hour capacity for 20 years. And when you look at the Tesla warranty, or you look at the LG or the Samsung warranty, which by the way, is 35 pages long compared to mine, which is three pages long, and it's full of legalese and trapdoors about what you can and can't do. It reminds me of the Saturday Night Live Happy Fun Ball commercial, right? Like, do not play with Happy Fun Ball. Do not bring Happy Fun Ball outside. Do not play with it in the rain. Do not let your kids touch it. It's the same situation here because it basically says, if you don't use your power wall in the first 10 years, if you just keep it in your garage, it'll be worth about 70% of what it was when it was straight out of the box. It'll just have natural aging and decay. If you actually use it, like half a cycle a day or one full cycle a week, it's going to be less than that. And if you use it every day, I think their warranty is between 40 and mm. 55% after eight years or something like that. And it's constantly changing and it's getting better. Mm -hmm. But that gets back to the phone discussion that we had, right? Those batteries, the instant you charge them, the instant you start to discharge them, chemicals within them start to migrate. Think of it like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. We all loved them as kids. I still love them. <laughs> right? With extra crunchy peanut butter, please. You know, you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for me. And I, I like to eat it within the first three hours, right? You make them, I, I make them for my kids all day long and they eat them at lunchtime. But if your kid doesn't eat, your, eat his peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you find it in his book bag that night, you know, the jelly <laughs> and the peanut butter has migrated into the bread and the bread gets soggy. The same thing happens with a lithium ion battery. Those chemicals that are locked up in their moral equivalent of peanut butter and jelly start to migrate into the bread. And that's, the, that's what drives the accelerated capacity decay. We've talked a little bit about duty cycle limitation and electrodegradation. Yeah. And the last one is cooling required to prevent thermal runaway. Thermal runaway is the PC term for a massive fire. A lithium-ion battery and all batteries have a ton of pent-up energy in chemical bonds, right? That energy, when released, is almost like the energy that comes out of a match head with phosphorus. There's no amount of water you can spray on it. There's no amount of dry powder you can put on it because when the dry powder is removed and the fire is done being suffocating, the fire will just start up again. I don't know if you mm. recall, but my father was the chief of the local volunteer fire department growing up. And in his office, there was a cabinet and he had every commercial industrial facility around town and he had a fire plan for that facility based on the chemicals they have. I've talked to no less than 10 fire chiefs close family friends about lithium ion batteries. And the only plan they have for a lithium ion battery fire is to spray the surrounding buildings and let the fire de-energize. There really mm -hmm. is no way to put one out. It's, it's going to burn until it's completely de-energized. You compare that to a flow battery, and you know flow batteries, especially Vision's battery, they thrive in hot temperatures. 
There's no HVAC required. You know, they have a large thermal mass, and so there's not a ton of additional auxiliary loads. And they're non-flammable, they're non-toxic, they're non-explosive. And, you know, if you really think about where batteries create the most commercial value, it's really at the grid edge, right, where they can provide behind-the-meter services and front-of-the-meter services, which is code for different multiple income streams. That's where people work. That's where people play. And frankly, that's right near extremely high-value grid infrastructure. What does that mean, high-value grid infrastructure? One of the favorite locations for front-of-the-meter large-format energy storage is at or near an existing substation, right? Like utility, uh, utility infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. So these substations, right, you've seen them when you're driving along the highway. You know, they're, the, it, it, they're all behind a fence. It's a bunch of switches, a bunch of transformers, and right. they're all painted gray. That's a great place to put a battery, right? Because the battery can provide ancillary services, frequency regulation, bolt bar control, spinning reserve, and energy balancing services as well. And the notion of putting a battery especially, you know, one that has a propensity for thermal runaway right next to it. So if that battery were to have a short and go, you know, into kind of thermal runaway mode as a lithium ion solution, you know, we're starting to see more and more fire departments come out with requirements to have those batteries be placed no closer than 150 yards to high value grid infrastructure. Mm. And uh, with a flow battery like Visions, you don't need that type of offset in terms of uh, ease of sighting and permitting. So can we go back just to a previous question? Can you explain what a flow battery is at its core? Absolutely. So a flow battery is a battery that has two tanks, right? One of analyte and one of catholite. These two tanks of solution, and in Vision's case, they're filled up with zinc salts, iron salts, and KOH, get pumped through a stack. And when they're in a stack, those fluids pass down through what's called a cell, and the analyte and the catholite are separated by a membrane. And that membrane allows nothing to flow except for electrons, Mm -hmm. right? So there will be in half of each cell, in Vision's case, we'll be depositing and plating uh, zinc onto a large Mm -hmm. iron plate. When that happens, electrons are freed up, just like when the sun hits a solar cell. And those electrons pass through the membrane and are picked up by an electrode on the other side. So if you can imagine in a solar panel, you've got 60 cells or 72 cells building up current and voltage. The same thing can be said for a vision stack. A vision stack is a stack of about 45 cells. It's about the size of a college refrigerator, right? And that stack can generate up to about 18 kilowatts of power. And if you throw the switch one way, it charges up 18 kilowatts of power for four hours, and you're plating that zinc on the iron, almost like uh, plating a penny with copper. And then you flow the, throw the switch the other way, and you can discharge 18 kilowatts for four hours. And so then what we do is when we've got you know this 18 kilowatt four-hour stack, we wire 12 of those up in series and we have a uh, you know a roughly 200 kilowatt battery with some pretty massive tanks right in 40 foot shipping containers you've got a 200 kilowatt 4 hour battery and it can discharge 200 kilowatts for 4 hours and charge 200 kilowatts for 4 hours till the cows come home but if you want to run it at half power uh-huh. it can run for 8 hours for example 
if I understand correctly, then basically it is a transfer of an electrolyte. I mean, you basically said salt water and potassium, which is what the kind of fundamental ingredients in Gatorade, right? <laughs> well, yeah. So, I mean, you, you fill this up with mostly water, right? And then the zinc salts and the iron salts are basically uh, food additives, right? Uh-huh. And stuff that's used in common additives to, to road salt. Right. And so that's one of the stuff that you can secure locally or do you have to ship these specific things to your customers? No, that's a that's a perfect question, because one of the key differences between vision and other flow batteries is that, you know, these are commodities that are used for other very large industries and they're globally available in the purities that we require. Right. Mm. So when we're deploying a flow battery in Australia, we buy it there and the purities we require. Wow. And, and even in Nicaragua, you're buying it there and the purities you require. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's amazing. It, well, it's, it, it's a completely different approach, right? Because yeah. if, if, you, if you look at lithium ion, right, and there was a study produced this week that said right now, if you look at the demand for just electric vehicles in 10 years, we are going to need to increase the production of lithium by a factor of 18 times above current production levels, Yeah. right? So there are no rare earth metals. There are no oddball chemicals. 100% of the materials that we use in the production of our batteries are basically available uh, commonly. And when people say, Mm -hmm. you know, how are you going to scale manufacturing? I look them dead in the eye and I say, you know, if you look at the supply chains for the materials we use, I already have a hundred gigafactories mm. worldwide. I'm thinking through the through the lens of a developer here, and I don't know the answer to this question, just want to caveat that. What I hear you saying then is like if I'm doing projects in remote areas of the world, let's call it Latin America emerging markets, and a lot of my audience is Latin America, and you mentioned Nicaragua, so I'm gonna pinpoint that. Basically, like I'm not shipping uh, these dangerous chemicals. I like I should be able to save on logistics and delivery timeline. Yeah, well, you know, in terms of battery lead times, normally inverters and transformers are longer than our battery. And mm. our batteries shipped empty and they ship dry, right? Meaning the tank the tanks are empty and when they get to the site so that's we lighter, so it costs less. Right. And so we schedule then the delivery of the water trucks and we schedule the installation commissioning and mm. we call it the, the pour up, right? Where we mix and pour up the electrolytes on site. And the electrolyte is rated as what's called on the NFPA scale a a 200. So if if you're driving down the street and you look at the back of the tanker trucks, you know, they've got those symbols for what's inside and how hazardous it is. Mm. And they're rated on, you know, flammability, toxicity, and, you know, whether or not they're explosive. And we're a 200, which is like the moral equivalent of Purell, that stuff that you rub on your hands. NFPS, National Fire Protection Association, and basically this rating is the health risk, flammability, and retroactivity of the product. Yeah, and just just about any environmental health and safety or fireman can look at the back of any tanker truck that's rolling down the street and tell you what's inside, whether it's liquid propane or milk. Right. And everything has a rating and it's all clearly labeled. The other thing, and this is jumping two questions back or two topics back, and it, it's worth noting that, you know, with most batteries, if you want to grow a system from a three-hour system to a five-hour system or from a 30-minute system to a two-hour system, you just have to add more batteries. However, with a vision yeah. system, 
80% of the cost is in the battery stack. And if you want to expand the duration, you just need to make the tanks bigger. Your last comment before we said the other thing here was something that I wanted to key in on. And you talked about hours, right? And one of the things that I've been learning is this difference between power and energy and how fundamentally you have to think about storage differently in terms of what you're delivering to the customer or the user. Can we talk a bit about that? Sure. You know, there's a, there's a pretty famous set of charts out there that I call the, the wheel of revenue, right? And whether you're looking at behind the meter systems or front of the meter systems, right? The income streams are usually categorized based on the various types of services, right? So let's take a utility scale system in California, right? In California, you have this four-hour resource adequacy auction every year from the three regulated utilities, right? And they're looking at and saying, we want the battery to be able to charge and discharge for up to four hours, anywhere from 50 to 60 days a year when we call on the battery and when we need it most, right? We would call that service, we would call that type of application an energy application. And Mm -hmm. when you go to buy a lithium-ion battery, when you open up the Samsung brochure, you have to make a choice. You can either buy the energy format or the power format, right? Mm -hmm. And so the systems that are being built in California are these energy format lithium-ion batteries. They last 7 to 10 years, and they can do energy services, long-duration energy services. Meanwhile, you jump back to PJM marketplace, you know, in the Northeast and Upper Midwest, and, you know, one of the first market niches that opened up was short-duration high-power services for ISO, RTO, or otherwise referred to as ancillary services, and it was a frequency regulation market. Those were 15-minute batteries. They weren't really being charged or discharged. Basically, when the grid was seeing minute perturbations in its overall frequency of 60 hertz, the batteries would jump in and quickly discharge or quickly charge to keep the the overall power quality of the grid on point. It's an extremely valuable service that batteries can provide, but the the lithium-ion batteries that can do that specific service are of the power format, right? And it's the ability to do that quick discharge. Right, that quick yeah. discharge, and they're displacing inertial systems, spinning mass systems right. that are out there sitting in spinning reserve that can do that as well, but batteries can do it cheaper and faster, and you saw what happened to the frequency regulation price signal in, lit- in, in PJM when the batteries came in, you know, they, they drove it down to a much lower uh, pricing point. It disrupted the frequency reg market when PJM introduced batteries. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Significantly, the the annual revenue per megawatt that you could get for supporting PJM frequency regulation got cut in half because batteries could deliver that service at a much lower marginal cost. Right. This explains a lot about like kind of what Stephen Lacey and others at GTM have been saying that it won't be hard to see a scenario where utilities look past uh, solar and wind and other technologies and look straight to storage and like embrace storage whole hog because it actually can do for them a lot of what they already understand how they what they need to fix. And then solar and wind just become they become ancillary to the conversation. I mean, it, it seems to me like storage is build, building a building in conversation right now, especially at a utility level where it is going to be the dominant discussion versus like whether or not we integrate renewables. What I'll say is that the storage discussion with regulated and unregulated utilities is very different than it is uh, when you start when, when I've been talking to them about uh, non-dispatchable renewable energy for the last 10 years. And mm, they're looking yeah. at this as a standalone opportunity to save significant amounts of money. 
uh, not just on mm-hmm. ISORTO services, but also for longer duration signals. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it's well known, and, and I'll get back to your power versus energy and your duration discussion, because I think that's my most important totally. point today. But it's well known that, you know, something like 50% of our transmission grid is only used 20% of the time, mm. right? So the entire transmission and distribution uh, network in our country is sized to the peaks, mm-hmm. right? And it's used, you know, at or near a comfortable capacity until they need to build new transmission lines for certain load pockets. It's being used at or near capacity just during like July, August, and early September when everybody's running their HVAC units. And that'll change when everybody starts plugging in their electric cars, right? You know, this notion that uh, you need to continue to build this massive piece of infrastructure to the peaks is going to go out the window, right, as energy storage comes in and it can charge at night and discharge during the day and take the infrastructure we have and make it last another 20, 30 years. It's going to be much easier for regulated utilities to rate-based massive batteries than it is going to be to build new transmission lines through communities. Right, right. And it's going to be cheaper, right? I mean, a fraction of the cost. And you're already seeing that in Brooklyn, right? You're already seeing, instead of trying to build uh, $3 billion of transmission and distribution into Brooklyn, you know, they've decided in the REV program to hold capacity auctions for batteries sited uh, behind the meter at, you know, Brooklyn facilities. And so it's just a much easier way along with demand response to deal with load. Mm. But we're talking about two very different types of services here. That's right. You know, with whether it's the resource adequacy and the transmission and congestion relief, those are long-duration energy services, or the ISORTO services, which are high-power, high short-duration services. And the biggest, the biggest misconception about lithium-ion batteries is that a lithium-ion battery can do either or, right? And the fact of the matter is that you, when you open up the brochure from Samsung or LG, you have to choose on day one whether you're going to build a power battery for ISORTO services like spinning reserve or freak reg, or if you're going to build a long duration battery for a TND relief or, or resource adequacy. Now, the the fundamental, and if you go and you try to use your power battery to do energy services or your energy battery to do power services, big brother back at the battery company will be watching and he will yank your warranty so fast and your battery will only last two to three years, wow. right? Yeah. So it's just just like your just like your phone battery, right? If you misuse it, if you you know uh, keep it on the charger overnight, now we're learning uh, it's going to die faster, right? Because it's going to see electro degradation due to a duty cycle that it's not designed for. Two separate chemistries. As I said earlier, the the resource adequacy signal and the TND congestion relief. PG&E only wants the RA signal for you know fifty to seventy days a year. Transmission and distribution congestion relief, it's only going to be required for June, July, and August, or July, August, September. Every developer and utility is now asking me when they're looking at those those types of applications, what do I do with the battery for the other 300 days out of the year? <laughs> this gets back to something called revenue stacking, right? Where you can uh, use the battery for a service one time of the year and a different service the other time of the year and or even throughout the day. We've talked about how all of the ancillary services are power in nature, voltage support, frequency regulation, spinning reserve, right. and how all the utility services 
TND deferral, resource adequacy and distribution deferral are energy in nature. So the biggest aha moment that I have with every utility is when they realize that when they build a lithium-ion system that's designed to do power services, they can't use it for energy services. The biggest differentiator for vision, and this is something going back to the question of the MRD and thinking about what utilities really need and understanding the customer and what the grid is going to need, the grid is going to need a battery that can do energy services 50 to 70 days out of the year and power services the other 300 days out of the year. A battery that runs and you drive it like a rental, 365 days a year, two cycles a day. You use that battery and you stack those revenues. And that's vision, right? Uh That's what I saw in vision. And I feel like I kissed a lot of frogs. When I met the team at vision and saw what they were working on, I dropped everything. Mm -hmm. And I ran as fast as I could to join this team. And what we're doing, I believe, can be truly transformational to the grid. You know, you take that over to a utility-scale solar application, right? Utility-scale solar, right? Let, let's think about that for a second. So it's, let's say it's 100 megawatts with a 30 megawatt battery, right? Everybody says, well, solar, you don't know when the sun's going to shine. You don't like this thing called cloud chop. Uh, you want to use the battery to shift the power from when it's generated to evening capacity. Mm-hmm. It's pretty easy to imagine using a battery for a single cycle a day to charge it in the morning and discharge it in the afternoon when everybody comes home and turns on their air conditioner or their refrigerator and their stove and their TV, right, to meet that duck curve, right? Yep. You know, that's a that's a killer application, right? You know, vision can do that and to some extent, lithium-ion batteries can do that. The energy format version of the lithium-ion batteries can do that, you know, depending upon the total cost of ownership for capacity management. What gets more interesting is how, you know, if you had a versatile battery, if you had a battery that could do that long-duration energy shift and that energy balancing that we talked about, and that battery could also do high-power services for ISO and RTO applications, like frequency regulation, voltage support, power quality, black start, or spin reserve. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's really where vision comes in, right? And you know what we've been able to show and what we've been working on uh, with our customers is how uh, we can do everything that the energy format lithium-ion battery can do, but overnight we can provide these other services uh, in these utility-scale applications and generate you know, in the California market uh, up to 30% more income per megawatt per year. You know, customers come up and say, hey, what's your turnkey cost for kilowatt hour? And I say, well, it's, 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 it's pretty close to lithium ion. We're, we're going to compete nicely on first cost. And I always say, well, and what are you going to use the battery for, right? Because whether it's a commercial industrial application right. or a utility application, <laughs> yeah, it, you know, I'm pretty sure I can generate up to 50% more value per megawatt. And that's like the difference between a one-axis tracker solar and a fixed tilt solar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people pay more. For the incremental juice, right? And so we think we're building a pretty valuable battery company that could compete on first price if it wanted to, but it doesn't have to because eventually we're going to be able to compete on value. I love it. I really appreciate the depth of uh, knowledge you bring and how thoughtful you have been about understanding not only where vision competes, but 
what does that imply about where you don't compete and what things what things people are missing in terms of actually setting the right parameter or filter for themselves to say, okay, what kind of battery do I actually need? Could you help me understand, given that you've been you know, selling into not just the U.S., but Latin America and other markets, broadly speaking, what do you think are the primary hurdles to growth and scale for, for the conversation around solar plus storage? Not just so storage as a as a tool for utilities, but integrating it into what a lot of us are thinking about. How do we add storage to our already existing solar offering? What are the primary hurdles to growth there? I'm a year and a half removed from, you know, my my role at Trina. And, you know, I'm constantly kind of gobsmacked by the announcements I'm hearing in these reverse Dutch auctions, right, around the world for PPAs. Uh, for huge utility-scale solar systems being dropped into country A or country B or country C. You know, although this may be, uh, you know, sort of a, a short punt of, a, of, an, of an answer, you know, what, what we're starting to hear is we're starting to hear conversations in China, in India, Australia, Brazil, Chile, and early conversations in California there's going to be a value for the time at which solar is delivered. Um, just like we saw five years ago uh, in uh, some of the Caribbean nations where there were specific requirements for the ramp rate of the solar farm and the impact of cloud chop on overall power output. You know, I, I think those types of market drivers coming directly from utilities who will be able to see that a, a solar plus storage solution will be able to deliver dispatchable or partially dispatchable kilowatt hours, uh, you know, cheaper than coal, you know, we'll start to look at saying, all right, well, these kilowatt hours might not be as cheap as they would be if they were solar only, but we prefer the dispatchability because that will allow our grid to get from 15 to 30% penetration all the way up to 70 to 80% penetration of solar. Yeah. So, I get you know, these two technologies are intrinsically linked. So with that in mind, what I hear you saying is the answer is basically the reg the regulations and commercial terms aren't yet in place in most of these markets to take advantage of the true inherent value of storage integration. So, if that's true, is there a market that Latin America could look to in the US, a template or, or how could we as developers help and think about preparing the markets we're working in, be that Iowa, if it's not ready, or Argentina, to actually get these regs and commercial terms in place and, and help have this conversa- improve this conversation with the utilities and the regulation body. As you know, we're, we're building a, uh, a relatively large storage system in Nicaragua at a very large resort, mm-hmm. right? You know, this resort happens to be in a uh, rate structure where the cost of electricity goes up significantly after 4 or 5 p.m. So they have evening peak pricing. There's opportunities for incremental resiliency in that market. So frankly, if I look at Latin America, I would say that there are two major use cases to focus on. The first would be large power users behind the meter, commercial, industrial, uh, luxury, like this particular facility, where they're on specific rate structures that have the opportunity for energy arbitrage and demand charge savings and resiliency, right? More and more of these large power users in Latin America are thinking solar, understanding the rate structures and understanding where you have that spread to sort of buy low, sell high. 
uh, or leverage the sol excess solar generation in the daytime to drop that in the battery and use it at, in the evening. That is oftentimes the key economic right. driver that allows for storage projects in, in behind the meter in Latin America to pencil out. You combine that with the elimination of the diesel gensets for backup power, cleaner, quieter operation, and the lower OPEX, and you can sometimes find a winning equation. And is that elimination of diesel gensets, is that uh, use case number two? No, I'd say that's um, that's you know income stream or, or or system benefit number three for commercial industrial facilities behind the meter that elimination of the diesel and then use case number two in my opinion is gonna be distribution and transmission deferral mm -hmm. right so you have rapidly developing economies right in Latin America right where you have significant load growth you know load growth typically happens in pockets right where Communities are rapidly growing, but they're at the end of a long transmission and distribution line. You know, a lot of the transmission lines in Latin America are what are called uh, single wire. Most of rural America is strung up that way as well. It's single wire. The only way to bring more capacity, more amperage out is to, is to go and run another conductor, right? Those conductors are not cheap. And oftentimes it requires a new set of poles. And, right. you know, it's, it's not the million dollars a mile high voltage transmission line, but it's a fraction of that. Also, you have aging grid infrastructure, age, aging substations that are reaching the edge of their capacity to, to transmit power. Dropping a battery, you know, in the load pocket near an aging substation allows three things to happen. It allows the avoidance of the additional wires, right? Mm -hmm. So you can avoid right. that. You can avoid the cost of new transmission poles and infrastructure. You can increase the lifetime of that substation. Right. So if that substation was reaching its capacity, you can add decades to its potential life. Additionally, the last thing you can enable in that load pocket is the addition of solar, right? Because, you know, you imagine, you know, load growth in a relatively weak grid, right? Right. Adding solar to that. If you're not allowed to export the power back on the trunk line, you know, you're going to need to deal with that unpredictability from the source. The idea of having a battery very close to the substations uh, would allow for easy grid balancing of excess solar generation at any given time. You know, let's say it's Sunday afternoon, everybody's with their family, nobody's working, uh, you know, the sun is shining, right? You could imagine you know, 10 megawatts of solar in that grid actually creating a problem without a good battery. But if you had a good battery and there's relatively no load because it's a nice uh, 65, 75 degree day, the battery could absorb that. And then when everybody comes home and starts um, uh, enjoying their family during the home time and the TVs come on and the air conditioner comes on or whatever comes on, uh, you discharge the battery then. So it enables higher grid penetration of uh, of solar. Mike, I, I just love uh, the thoroughness of your answers. This is a, basically a masterclass for anyone who doesn't get battery storage yet. Like, listen to this again, folks. If you haven't been paying attention, if you're on a run, if you're out cutting your grass and you're missing a few things because somebody honked their horn, you want to go back and listen in a quiet environment, maybe on your next flight to the next destination in Latin America or, or wherever flyover country you're going. This is the most in-depth conversation I've ever had with someone that basically lays out front-to-back argument for how to think about battery storage. And while, you know, I think Mike is doing a great job of representing his job, which is vice president of marketing for Vision, he also really understands and presents the case 
for storage in, I think, a balanced way that should allow you the ability to think about the fundamentals of your argument. Hey, Mike, I'd like to ask a few more kind of personal career-oriented questions as we round out the conversation. Is that okay? Uh, depends. What do you got? <laughs> <laughs> well, first, I want to know your you know name, social security number. Uh, I'd love to hear about, I mean, you've served as a mentor for me, and I could answer this question with regard to uh, your influence in my life, but You've had some great folks influence you as well. What are some key lessons or takeaways from those mentors in your life or career that that you pass along? I'll I'll say this, you know, I mean, just about every password I've had since, uh, frankly, um, pivoting my life towards clean energy has been something along the lines of wind 86 coal, solar 86 coal, F coal, right? My entire body is uh, dedicated towards, you know, uh, a cleaner grid and, you know, a carbon-free grid and doing everything that I can within my capacity to impact that. You know, I look at my kids, I hope they find something in their life that they're this passionate about, Hmm. right? Because Nico, I I recall when we used to work together, I used to drive my team hard because employees who are in this industry, they are willing to give you 10, 12 hours a day if they're the right employees. And frankly, that's how I hire. I don't hire people who aren't passionate about the end goal. Uh, It gets me back to something that I think it was my grandfather, but I know my dad said it all the time, and it was that nothing worth doing is easy, right? Right. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, I think, you know, I should have it on a plaque somewhere somewhere here in my office, uh, but I don't. But nothing worth doing is easy. Right, we got coal down from fifty to thirty percent here in North America. It's a good start, but we got to finish the job. Mike, what failure most affected or influenced your career? The other way I might couch it, Mike, is: Is there any advice for fellow entrepreneurs currently in the throes of startup life? From we are learning and and your ups and downs in the valley of uh, of the shadow of startup death, right? Like it's ha- it happens, and we all have to face the face the the reality of that. If you look at my career, right, there was time spent growing renewable energy segments of some of the largest corporations out there, you know, GE and Trina. But it's a pretty well-known fact that, you know, I was a a pretty large player at Solyndra as well. I was, uh, my last role there was their VP of marketing. It's a pretty well-known faceplant in terms of, you know, uh, solar technology. You know, the the thing about Solyndra that, that people don't know is that we shipped 150 megawatts of product over three years into 1,200 rooftops around the world. And it was a better mousetrap. It got yeah. caught up in you know plumb- plummeting global prices and ultimately could not compete. And you know that's the way that markets work. You know I, I think that any entrepreneur, anybody coming up in this industry, has to prepare themselves you know, over the course of a 30-year career to work for anywhere from you know, three to seven different companies, some of them big, some of them small. You need to learn what big company processes are. So when you're building a small company, you're building it so that you can put in place the big company processes very easily, right? And, um, you know, you you need to realize that, you know, if you're going to want to make this omelet, right, This, uh, this grid that's dominated by clean energy, you're going to have to see some eggs get broken. And those eggs just might be, right, companies that you happen to be working for, right? So, you know, be prepared to make some bets and 
to not have every one of them pan out. Be prepared to work for companies that are mature, companies that are immature, but constantly be looking for an opportunity uh, to give, you know, um, you know, from every single fiber in your being, kind of what you have uh, and bring your unique skill and your unique perspective and your unique learnings from everything you've done and everything you want to do to the table. Mike, I always like to check in with folks who are in a leadership position and really understand how do you inform yourself, whether that's a book, a blog, online. Like I'm, I imagine you do five, 10 hours of reading a day. Where are you getting your information? How do you stay sharp and ahead of your peers? Sure, sure. I, I, I call it drinking from the fire hose, right? You know, at, at this point in time in my career, I wish I had time to read books, right? But I feel like I, I'm consuming information as an individual uh, individual content, you know, when I'm not in meetings, you know, anywhere from four to four to five hours a day, right? Yeah, you know, I've got a couple key sites. I've got some RSS feeds. I've got some Google keywords that essentially aggregate for me. I have mm-hmm. to have it aggregated. And then, you know, frankly, there have been some um, excellent thematic pieces that come out regularly for some from some leading investment banks or some you know, essentially institutions that focus on our sector. When it comes to politics, I like to spend uh, just as much time reading the alternate side than, you know, the side where I tend to vote. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.